0: Part of a uh, awareness practice, wisdom practice, that life is difficult, that uh, really the wish of our heart, the natural impulse of our heart, is for the good. That the na- I, I, I have such a faith that our own heart, our natural heart, when we're not confused and overwhelmed and overstimulated or frightened, is really to wish well and do well and. Um, make the world as uh, comfortable and as gratifying a place as it can be for a life in the full awareness that old age sickness and death are gonna happen to everybody. So not to add the extra complications that ignorance of different sorts um, brings. There's enough suffering just in being part of this. And there's enough um, to exult about I love it when Lucius is here in the morning because you can hear him here and you hear the whole other end of life that uh, talk about who is sick and who is struggling and who is new and who is excited about it. To be able to bless is a way to be able to say this is what happens in life. So sometimes I think maybe we should just do blessings, say um, travel safe. at whatever stage in life. you know, Travel safe if you're starting, travel safe if you're sick, travel safe if you're going to Mexico, travel safe if you're changing, travel safe if you're getting into a relationship, travel safe if you're getting out of a relationship. <laughs> the, 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 the whole thing is uh, traveling mercies, my friend Annie Lamott would say. And uh, the, I, I've, I've uh, long decided that maybe the ultimate liturgy religious practice would be uh, please, thank you, I'm sorry, uh, please forgive me, and uh, I love you. Mm-hmm. That would about cover all the <laughs> things that we had to say to people in all of our whole life, just recovering ourselves from various, and acknowledging what's true. And when we don't have to say any of those, we're, you know, everything's okay. We had a very nice thank you note from the women who are doing the three-year retreat in, in Tahoe because we sent them that great basket of uh, foodstuffs as treats and I won't read you the whole letter but they sent two whole detailed notes about how they're gonna use those different uh, exotic spaghetti sauces and things that we sent for their fancy poojas and that they think of us every day in their prayers and I think it's a great thing to have two monks sitting up in Tahoe thinking about us every day in their prayers. I think that, sometimes I think about myself, if I could be in that place where I could just be thinking gratitude for people, I would be happy, I would be energized, I would be able to do the things in the world that I want to do. So now I come to the turnover point where I can involve Susan in this conversation. I'll ask her to tell a little bit her story. Oh, for the tape, I have to say, this is Susan Moon who is here with me today, and some of you came in a little bit late, so you don't know that this is Susan Moon, who is a uh, long-term Buddhist practitioner in the Zen tradition that you can tell from her Raksu, and um, um, a, uh, the editor of uh, Turning Wheel, uh, do you call it a magazine or a newspaper? We call it a magazine. It's a magazine. Or okay. a journal. Or it's a journal of the uh, Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And uh, uh, we decided to talk together this morning because she called to tell me about a particular event this weekend. And I said, well, as long as you're going to talk about the event, talk about Buddhist Peace Fellowship, talk about Turning Wheel, and let's do it all in the um, larger context of political and social advocacy, and how that's part of uh, spiritual life. So I said, I'll say something to set that up, and then I want you to tell about your experience in, uh, in your own practice. And so let me just take five minutes, okay, and just set this up a little bit. Because I thought a lot, I, th- I was thinking a lot. Uh, when Susan called yesterday, I had uh, uh, just had a phone call from uh, a person who's a, uh, a, a part of the organizing administrative structure of a Rainforest Action Network that really does some extraordinary good work in terms of uh, advocacy for the earth. He said, well, what we do is, for instance, we just, uh, Boise Cascade has just agreed to phase out old growth logging because we campaigned with them to do that. Citibank has just agreed to um, suspend all loans to any kind of logging companies that log old growth. Don't you feel good, but does your heart pick up when you see something good happened? People did not lose heart. He said, if you go to Home Depot, they don't sell redwood anymore. That's because of us. You think quietly, quietly, people do not lose hope. They keep on doing something, and something good happens in a a time when it's quite easy to become jaded and to give up hope and to say, you know. Nobody, first of all, nobody cares anymore. And besides, it doesn't do any good. And the cynicism for me always is one step behind the door, one false move, and cynicism and despair is out and joining the party. And then you have to call one of your friends and say, what are you doing good these days? Because it picks you up to know about it. I had breakfast this morning with my friend Mary Kay Sweeney, who you know who comes from time to time, who directs the homeless program in Marin County. And I asked her, what do you do? when despair and cynicism come leaping out from somewhere. She said, oh, I go and I talk to the people uh, who live in our programs in, in New Directions and Homeward Bound, and their energy is boundless, and their enthusiasm, and their, uh, so it just picks me up tremendously. So I think about what, how, do we, how do we, the component that I thought about is what um, supports the heart in its determination to do an action on behalf of the good? How do we get our energy refilled when there is so much in our life that mitigates in the other direction, that pushes in the other direction? It's easy to feel overwhelmed. It's easy to get bombarded. It's easy to feel depressed. Um, Some years ago, uh, Philip, who does the morning show at KPFA said to me, uh, have you seen the bumper stickers now that say, um, if you're not depressed, you're not paying attention?" <laughs> and uh, I thought about it for a long time, because I uh, because at the time I thought I was eloquent in saying, no, no, actually paying attention is the antidote to being depressed, and I did a whole eloquent response, which for the life of me I can't reconstruct at this moment. <laughs> but. Uh, you know, I'm quite sure <laughs> if I tried, maybe I could. I uh, also, so that picked me up tremendously. This is what Rainforest Action Network is doing. I listened to Forum the day before yesterday. and uh, did you hear that forum program with the Palestinian yes. Israeli mm-hmm. and the Jewish Israeli, two people who uh, have put together an organization called Peacemaker International? Also called one voice the website is silent longer.org and what their particular mission is is collect at this point is collecting signatures worldwide in Israel and in uh, all of the West Bank Gaza um, collecting signatures of Isra- of Palestinians and of Jews and of Non-Palestinians, non-Jews, there and worldwide, who are saying we really support two states, equal value, equal respect for each other. We respect uh, we respect each other's right to exist as countries. The the uh, I went online to sign that pro- that declaration because they said what well, our important job is to say is to say to the world. The continuing terrible situation there is uh, not what most people are wanting to have. That actually there's a very sizable majority of people on both sides there who really understand that the way to live a life that's going to be a life for their children and their children's children is a life of peaceful cooperation. And lest that voice get co-opted by the voice of radicalism on both sides. So here are people c- just slowly working away, coming through the United States now and uh, teaching all over the place. So if you didn't hear them on the radio, really uh, www.silentnolonger.org. There's another website with almost the same name which has which I won't even tell you, which I got on by accident, which has quite the opposite. So um, silent no longer. That's it. And the last thing that I brought as a preparation to introduce the topic of activism and expressing one's conscience in a public way to make a difference um, is the last issue of San Francisco Magazine. That talked about uh, that has as its theme for the month September, the new normal, is called. New normal is a phrase that I first heard, uh, in a book written by a woman who had a very long struggle, with breast cancer, and she talked about at each stage in the recurrence of the breast cancer, uh, needing to adjust to that place that she then was, and so people would say, "Are you normal?" I say, "Well, this is the new normal." <laughs> this is where I am. And I was thinking about that particular question, like attachment, you know, that uh, uh, I was thinking in some way, all of our lives are adjusting to the new normal, you know, that a person goes away to school and they have to adjust to the new normal of having uh, having to share with everybody in the school and not having your mother there or your father there all the day and having to make it on your own. And you go away to... Uh, you get to be a teenager. You have to deal with the new normal of having a body that does all kinds of things that it didn't used to do, and uh, you're not used to. And you move into relationship. You have to adjust to that new normal. You move out of the relationship. You have to adjust to that new normal. And you get old. You have to adjust to that new normal. I recently went to visit a woman who's a friend of mine who was 92 and just moved into an assisted living place and she wrote me a letter. She said, please come here. I, along with everybody else here, is having trouble adjusting to being here. And I thought to myself, I went, and I thought, you know, this, this, the problem of adjusting never finishes, you know, just adjusting the whole life. And then I thought, you know, there's a really interesting uh, edge and this is the piece that i'm going to hand it over to susanette between when do we adjust and when do we say wait a minute this new normal doesn't have to be now i make a statement when is it wise spiritual practice to say what can you do that's what's happening and when is it wise spiritual practice to say maybe i can do something here with what's happening and uh, accommodating is uh, um, accommodating is along the lines of indifference, and uh, the genuine equanimity at this point leads me to think that I shouldn't accommodate. So, is that outline the parameters of it? The?
1: There you go. <laughs> well, that's a big one. Um, it makes me think of the Serenity Prayer too—to accept what. I cannot change, and to change what I cannot accept, and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, but also I think in Buddhism we don't need to make them two separate things, they're not one category of things over here and another category of things over here, but uh, it's we have to accept everything that's happening and we also have to, well I don't know about have to, we seek to continue to to um, bring about the changes that we want to bring about at the same time that we accept what, what's happening right now. So we start where we are. And, and that kind of paradox is, is constantly with us, particularly as activists. Um, and so just to jump into some thoughts about socially engaged Buddhism, uh, it's one of the things I, I like about a Buddhist approach to activism is that uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for the law of karma, the law of cause and effect, because to me, it, it gives me tremendous faith and it makes me believe that you know, we, we work to bring about changes that we want to bring about. Um, we demonstrate against war in Iraq and it doesn't work, quote unquote, you know, the war happens anyway. Am I shaking this around? <laughs> Oh,
0: I turned it up a little bit too because the tape comes out a little low.:
1: So anyway, we keep on doing these things, and sometimes we have wonderful news, such as the news Sylvia just told us about Rainforest Action Network mm-hmm. projects. And sometimes we do these wonderful actions, and millions of people demonstrate on the same day all over the world for peace, and it doesn't happen the way we wanted it to happen. And. I really believe that um, beneficial actions produce beneficial results, and y- we don't get to know when those beneficial results will happen. But we can know that if we continue to work for peace, work for justice, work for what we believe in, and put our whole selves out there wholeheartedly, that somewhere down the line, maybe not in our lifetime, but somewhere down the line, that action will come to fruition so that it's never, nothing is ever wasted, it's not in vain, it's all part of the, the big turning of the wheel. So um, Buddhism really has given me a lot of faith to continue to do activist work in the world in the face of what sometimes seems really pretty depressing and um, that, like that bumper sticker, if you're not depressed you're not paying attention. Well, well, this is a kind of a way out of that. You can be paying attention and you can also be paying attention to all the all the wonderful things that people are doing and um, be grateful for that and I think uh gratitude is is another important aspect to this um to this kind of work of uh, working in the world to just even in the in the moments of great despair or the you new know, military budget. Uh, um, which we don't want to say this is the new normal, this kind of a military budget, um, and yet mm-hmm. we, um, we do need to think, okay, well, this is what's happening now. What are we going to do about it? But um, anyway, uh, to have gratitude as we're going along for, for the moments of stretching and reaching our hands up to the ceiling that we just did and gratitude for the feeling of our seats on the cushions and um, mindfulness of the body, just really being present. There's so many moments to be grateful for that we can ground ourselves in. So that's pretty general. But just to say a little bit more specifically about the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, um, it's, this is the 25th anniversary year of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship and it was started by a few people in Hawaii. Um, Robert Aiken and some other people at the Maui Zendo who um, thought that maybe people in Buddhist practice would want to come together as Buddhists to work for nuclear disarmament and so and it's grown tremendously over the years and um, I, I used to be involved in activism. I was an activist sort of before I was a Buddhist and was involved in the civil rights movement and um, the anti-nuclear movement and the women's movement. And then I I became a Buddhist in the 70s in Berkeley, um, and I joined the Berkeley Zen Center. And they were two completely separate parts of my life. And I would go to the Zen Center and meditate, and then I would go to political meetings and agitate and get ready to go out and demonstrate. And my my political friends thought that—I was a little embarrassed about the fact that I went and contemplated my navel at certain times. and then at the Zen Center, people thought, well, what do you, you want to go be yelling and screaming about? You know. So, I, I think there was much less separation than I actually perceived, but it seemed to me that these were two separate parts of my life, and not only were they separate, but they felt like they were not really harmonizing or supporting each other, and um, that there was some kind of either-or choice implied, that you couldn't do both. Um. <coughs> so. I was extremely grateful when the Buddhist Peace Fellowship came into existence to realize that there were a lot of people actually who, who felt that these two pieces of life are really pieces of one life. And that its that concern for, for peace and, and the alleviation of suffering is very inherent in Buddhism. And so um, for me, the Buddhist Peace Fellowship has been a wonderful home in that way, and also I, when I started working there, which was in 1990, to become the editor of Turning Wheel, it, was, it brought me an opportunity to bring together the three sort of strands of my life, really, of, of activism and Buddhist practice and writing and editing and working with words. So I just feel incredibly fortunate <laughs> to have this, this job. Um, But I I think that uh, I wanted to say something about how, how my own feelings about activism have also changed and become a little less dogmatic and didactic. And I used to think, once BPF started and I was all excited about that, that every Buddhist should just get out there all the time on the picket line and be waving your sign and demonstrating for peace. And now I, I see so much more how we're all part of the pattern and that there's a different balance for each person and in each life of, of how, much, how much contemplation you do and how much getting out there in the marketplace you do. And that um, you know Norman Fisher always says there's two parts of Buddhist practice. There's sitting down and then there's getting up. <laughs> and um, that <laughs> I, I, I think that puts it pretty succinctly. <laughs> but for some people, they spend more of t- the time sitting down and, and less sitting up, getting up, and some people see the other way around. And the people you just spoke of, who you s- somebody sent food to, these women who are doing a retreat. At we did. Ta- you, you all did well. Well, that I I now understand how pe- they are sitting for all of us, mm-hmm. and we those of us who might be out there getting arrested or whatever are doing it for all of them and we're all doing it for each other and we don't each of us need to do the whole thing in our own life and I um, you know I having thought well how could anybody just go live in a monastery the whole time that that's not really helping the world now I don't think that at all I think you know I want to live in a world where people live in monasteries and keep that practice going that I need that kind of a world to live in so I feel tremendous gratitude to all the different parts um, of the getting down and the uh, sitting down and the getting up <laughs> that people embody and the different ways they have of doing it. And I do think that in every life, there's, there's, you know, we want to have some of both. We have our, we find our own balance in our own life um, that works for us, and um, we only have ourselves to consult for how to how to make that balance come about. Um,
0: I like so much the uh, oops. talk a little bit. There. I like so much the idea of sitting down and getting up because I'm thinking also, metaphorically, even in a life where manifestly a person is up a lot of the time, their heart could sit down every once in a while. That I actually don't think the body has to sit down in order for your heart to sit down. That if uh, I have to think or I choose to think because my life is more up than down that maybe if I really practice, I can practice keeping my heart a, a, a conflict-free zone, uh, um, that if I can keep the war out of my heart in terms of not keeping any, any enemies on my enemy list, that I could be up and be um, sitting down at the same time. I'm saying that particularly today because it is three days before for some people the beginning of a new calendar year. How many people here uh, will, are cognizant of the fact that, f- that Saturday, Friday night, is the beginning of a new calendar year? Maybe about ha- How many people not? So about half of us and half of us. I have 57 what? 57? 92. 92. Coming on. <laughs> yeah. 5,792, that's the calendar year. And it begins Friday night at sunset, and if you look out, you'll see the sliver of the new moon at that point, Mm -hmm. announcing the new month. And the the work of these last uh, four weeks has been to investigate who's on your list and to see what kind of draw cleaning you can do, file purging you can do, so that uh, not to have amnesia but to have the kind of heart that uh, doesn't harbor animosity. There's a war in my heart, I won't be able to really fully address myself to peace in the world. So I want Susan to continue a little bit because there was was another piece that I wanted to take up where I think it was very important, where you said about um, even when we do some big demonstration or some big action, on behalf of something going a certain way, and then it doesn't go that way, um, the practice of not first of all not losing heart, but also it seems to me so clearly that even not even in the moment of it doesn't go the way that I wanted it to go, I could think, well, as you said, very wonderfully, you know, in the end, every good act, every act on behalf of peace makes ripples down somewhere else in in a karmic flow of things. I also think, not even down the line, but in the moment, that if my heart is acting on behalf of peace and consoling agitation in the world, in the moment my prayers are answered as well. The world doesn't change in terms of answering my prayers, but my prayers are answered in terms of that I don't have to go to war at that point. Not to say that I don't sometimes, but I don't have to. <laughs> the practice gives me the possibility of not going to war. <laughs> not the absolute positive <laughs> assurance that I won't. Um, so I want to talk to you. Here's another, uh, I have a question, and then maybe other people have questions. Um, first of all, I'm very impressed with the fact that uh, uh, or it seems to me that Buddhists do not have a corner on uh, awareness of the 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 consolation of good works in the world as a practice. So I was thinking, as you said about Thomas Merton mm-hmm. in a monastery saying to his abbot, "You know, I should be out, you know, marching in in Alabama with all my friends at this point, and here I am sitting in a monastery." And the abbot saying, you have no idea how many people you're holding up with your prayers, which mm-hmm. is what you just mm-hmm. said. I love that story, mm-hmm. don't you? Yeah. Uh, so it's not a Buddhist thing. Do mm-hmm. you want to talk to that a little
1: bit? Um, well, uh, I, think it, I think it's part of any spiritual mm. pursuit, actually. I, I don't know, I'm i not that familiar with, with um, other religious traditions of how they view. <laughs> work for peace, but I know uh, among um, Catholics, certainly, that's that's very true, that one is holding up the, the prayers for peace. Yeah. But I wanted to add something to what you said um, also about how even if the uh, demonstration doesn't, even if the proposition that you didn't want to have pass passes or whatever, um, another good part for me about participating in these things is that... Um, it gives me the opportunity to be more of a whole person, which I think is connected to what you were saying. But that um, you know, when, when some of those those demonstrations in San Francisco were, I mean, they were very exuberant, really, some of them. And and to uh, I rode the Larkspur Ferry over from Marin to San Francisco, and it was a beautiful day, and I was with other people who I cared about, and. And then sometimes when you actually push your envelope a little bit or go out of your comfort zone, as they say, you, and maybe you take an action that's a little bit scary or whatever, there's a, a kind of development of your own ability to step forward that I think is very valuable. And you are encouraging yourself to learn how to give and to learn how to, to be present with other people in, in a connected way which is extremely precious and, and very satisfying. So um, I, you know, I, I want to be a person who's able to take those opportunities and, and grow from them and share them with, with others in a loving way. So I think that's another really encouraging way that we can keep on going even, even when things seem pretty discouraging. I think I'd take from, from what you just
0: said, the word connected, which seems to me to be the, the, the key word, You also <laughs> said share, which mm-hmm. is the, 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 it goes along with connected. But I have such a sense that despair is what we have in a solitary way, you know, that we shrink into ourselves. Um, and I always feel like if there's one other person in the world who actually hears what I'm saying, gets it, and shares it with me as a conviction, then I don't lose faith. If I say to somebody, you know, I actually believe that, that, I deeply believe that the predisposition of the human heart if it is to, if it's for the good. I really deeply believe that if we are not frightened, confused, overwhelmed, alarmed, uh, fatigued, whatever, that if we're in our right mind, our right mind is a compassionate mind, and that when we are living out of that mind, we're happy. That we feel like ourselves, and that uh, if there's someone else who gets that and says, "Yes, yes, I share that," well, yes, yes, I get why you're here. That, as you say, there's such a spirit of camaraderie mm-hmm. that you get lifted out of yourself and your own small story, like, "Oh, look, nobody gets it." Everybody, maybe nobody gets it in the world, but one other person, so I'm not alone. And I think that that business of connectedness not only uh, consoles me, but also inspires me to stand up for the next thing and do it, because I have a sense that I'm not doing it alone. I'm connected to everybody else, and I can't drop the ball. You know, not on my watch, but uh, uh, that somehow not any single one of us is going to change the whole world, but everyone is. And if I, in those moments when I sense myself to be part of everyone, then you can't put down the ball or opt out of the game. Or if I did, I, it would be really away from happiness, not towards it. So what do you think about it? Here's a really uh, somewhat um, edgy question. Someone asked it to me yesterday, so I'm thinking about it. Uh, let me see how they put it. Um, So, if you're going to be a Buddhist, you have to have a particular set of politics. What if you have another set of politics? What if you came and said, you know, I also am devoted to, I'd love to have peace in the world, and my view of how we'll get it is, um, and their political view is completely opposite from yours and they have an ideology about governing that's completely different from yours. In other words, uh, you know, would the Buddha have been a liberal democrat? (laughs) 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 Necessarily. (laughs) And does that mean that people with um, a, a conservative ideology that they've thought about very carefully and for which they have a rationale, good people with a good heart, can they come here? Can they join the Buddhist Peace Fellowship? Do you have to have a litmus test response to all the social issues? It's an edgy question, yeah. isn't
1: it? Yeah. Well, I think it's entirely possible for, for people to be Buddhists, sincere Buddhists, and have really different politics from each other. Um, but it's, it's a, little less, a little less possible for people to belong to the Buddhist Peace Fellowship and have entirely different <laughs> <laughs> politics. Um, because of, well, because of the commitment to nonviolence, which is really foundational for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, and um, I guess you can, you can uh, in maybe interpret nonviolence in different ways. But um, I, I don't know. I, I do think that, um, well, well, one thing about Buddhism that's a little different from uh, Western, from Judaism and Christianity, I think, is that there's. Um, that in, in Christianity, at least, and in Jesus's teachings, there's a big emphasis on helping the poor. And in Buddhism, um, there's a we, you help the poor and the rich equally. Mm-hmm. I mean, the rich also deserve help. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a kind of, um, a there's not as many social distinctions made in Buddhism, and in a way that's good. And um, so there should be room for, Everybody to come, certainly to a practice place. And, and in the 80s um, at Berkeley Zen Center, I, I was editor of the Berkeley Zen Center newsletter for a while, and there were all these demonstrations out at the Livermore Labs. And um, Mel Weitzman, who's our abbot there, um, and I got into some terrible fights because mm-hmm. I wanted to put all these announcements in the um, Berkeley's End Center newsletter, which was not turning wheel. You know, it wasn't a voice for speaking about social justice. It was a voice for the Berkeley's End Center, and I wanted to put announcements in about how there was going to be a demonstration at Livermore on such and such a day, and so on. And and I just thought, well, this is this is you know, every morning we say, I vow to save sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them. How can we make that vow and not go demonstrate against nuclear weapons? I don't understand it. And and then Mel would say, well, you know, we have. There was somebody who belonged to the Zen Center who worked at the Livermore Lab, who was a physicist, and who um, was supported the weapons program that they were developing. And Mel wanted him to feel completely welcome and free to come to Berkeley Zen Center. And he had a point. You know, it, It's just a really difficult question. I don't know what to say, except that it's difficult. I, I, think, um, you know, I think I had a point, too. But I, I think I needed to learn to not be as I was saying, so dogmatic, and so I did start to learn that a little bit better. Um, but we also had some discussions at Berkeley Zen Center, kind of produced by this argument that I had with Mel, where we turned it into a more positive thing, and, and he invited this person from Livermore to come and to talk with others at Berkeley Zen Center who were concerned about the, um, about nuclear weapons and the Cold War, and we had some really good discussions, and. Realized that we weren't each other's enemies, and that the man from Livermore was a very thoughtful person, is a very thoughtful person, who's become a friend of mine. And he, um, you know, he traveled to the Soviet Union as it was then and learned Russian so he could talk to Russian physicists so that he could really, he really didn't want to ever use nuclear weapons, but he thought they were really going to be helpful. So, so we just have to broaden our minds a little bit more and be ready to mm-hmm. talk to people who we think we disagree with, and then sometimes we don't disagree with them as much as we think we do.
0: This is a very, I love your answer, and I think it's a very interesting question, as you said, we, as Buddhists, uh, the Buddha was equally interested in teaching the poor as he was kings, you know, he didn't, um... Because the, when you said the, the poor need uh, help as much as the rich, you realize that the help that everybody, as, as I realized anyway, I think this is what you meant, that the, poor, the, the help that people need in that case is not financial equality. They need that. But the help that Buddhism has to offer is the news about the possibility of the end of suffering, which is not the end of oppression necessarily or the end of inequality, that the end of suffering <laughs> has to do with the development of a mind that sees clearly and is apart from social positioning. So it's really interesting to say that, because I completely agree, everybody needs the same, Uh, the the rich and the poor. How about the liberal ideologists and the conservative ideologists also? Whether it's the mandate of a Buddhist community like this to teach the technology of developing a mind that's clear in the, Faith that the mind that's clear will then make um, uh, decisions for the benefit of all beings, or should we also uh, be clearly out about our political positioning in order to point the heart and mind in that way? Is that is that fair to do? To do our bias, or are we are we in fact limiting the, our, our teaching? And not being open as to all people. I mean, is it? I'm actually seriously thinking about it as a, as a, um, as an issue for Spirit Rock to think about. BPF has, as part of its mission statement, you know, that political activism in a certain way.
1: I don't think we use the word political, but but work for social justice. We for do so, yeah. yeah,
0: and that has a certain ideology with yeah. it. You know? um, so it's just interesting. I don't. I don't know that the, what the the answer is yes or no. But I think about it, um, about whether or not it's—well,
1: do you have something to say? Because I don't yeah. something to say. I, I, just one quick thing is that also an important part of that is not making an enemy out of another person. So and that's part—I mean, part of the ideology is that there isn't somebody else who has the wrong ideology in a way. So I think that's really—it is important, and even at demonstrations. when like the one that you were arrested at and so was I and in San Francisco we were having we were talking with the officers who arrested us and having some good conversations with them and, and there's just a constant effort to be inclusive they never acted and we never had a sense of animosity no never yeah they were definitely not an enemy to
0: they us. weren't actually quite the, the lovely piece of the end of that whole morning uh, uh, was Susan Felix, who isn't here this morning, who also got arrested with us. Uh, when she was being uh, escorted out after, after we were arrested and, didn't, and but anyway, they dropped all the charges, but we were escorted to the door individually and the um, policeman, the federal policeman that uh, escorted her to the door, asked her to give him a blessing. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean that's quite a lovely thing, isn't <laughs> it? I mean, I mean we were not enemies to each other. I mean the, they were very kind to me. They said I'm terribly sorry to put these handcuffs on. We just have to do it. You know, it's our job. You know, it's your job to do to stand up for what you want to say, and it's our job to protect the streets of San Francisco. And you're breaking a rule, so you know everybody was very kind to each other. There weren't any enemies there. What were you going to say, Edie?
2: Uh, well, Sue Moon, Sue said the very words I was going to say. But first, since you mentioned, Susan, I also wanted to say that um, she broke her foot, oh. and she was going to come today. I was going to go pick her up and back to the wheelchair, and she just was too she tired, mm. couldn't. But she said, "Please send my blessings for the new year." Mm-hmm. We will do a. So con- I wanted everyone to know that. And hopefully next week she is. she'll feel well enough
0: to come. But so first of all, I'm at home. I'm hopeful that you will deliver Jamming all of in our. Her wheelchair. <laughs> I'm hopeful that you will deliver. Everybody can nod their head, put their hand up. Do you want Edie to deliver <laughs> on your behalf? Good wishes to Susan. Yes. I'll bring a basket. Basket of blessings for Sue.
2: Yeah
3: i you just spoke about breaking a rule um, in your activism. My question is, uh, what would be, not a rule,
0: but the first step to take in peaceful justice? So if you didn't hear over there, the question is, what would be a rule or the... F- what would be the first step to take uh, on behalf of peaceful mm-hmm. justice? I'll give peaceful
1: that... Peaceful
0: activism, yeah. Peaceful activism, there you go.
1: Uh, and for, do you have a particular context in mind?
2: Um,
3: I participated in the uh, "How to Become an Activist" series, and I'd hope to see you there and speak sometime. Um, and there are twelve roles of activism. And what would be the fe- first step in knowing um, about peaceful activism when you when you go out and? without shouting, or yelling, or quietly mm. making a point, um, what would be your first step? What would you tell someone What's the first step in?
1: Well, um, I'm not sure if I, I'm going to the question that you have, but I think uh, having an attitude of respect for everybody I meet would certainly be a beginning point for me. Um, And then um, I'd like the Quaker saying, speak truth to power, so maybe that would be a second step (laughs) following from an attitude of respect, or maybe those are one step rolled into one. But I think you would express yourself and take your first step very much depending on, on the particular concern that you're addressing and your own your own nature and personality. You know, if you want to work on an environmental issue, your first step might be a step into a garden, or if you want to work on, on uh, food issues, your first step might be in the, um, in the grocery store. Uh, you know, it, your first step would be tailored to what you, you really care about. And if you did it with respect for all beings, you'd be off to a good start. I think a lot about
0: uh, 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 keeping in mind that whatever I do should not be adding more trouble into an already troubled world. What can I do that doesn't increase the um, anger level in the world, increase the the level of suffering as a fundamental rule. And I think it's so important about, because that's what Susan said about to have respect, because I think when I am in... Situations where someone has um, mm-hmm. a view that's so completely different from my own, mm-hmm. sees it so differently, that there's an element of fear that comes up in me. Mm-hmm. And that it's like multi level fear. One of them is that that view might prevail, mm-hmm. and I think that would be awful. The other is that my view might be wrong, and that's always very alarming. What if I'm wrong? Because I built a considerable piece of my life around this particular view, uh, and I'm attached to it. uh, And what if they prevail? And because alarm comes up in me, then I am then perceiving them as an enemy, and I think unkind thoughts about them. Like what kind of an idiot would have a thought like that? Uh, uh, no, actually I was thinking, I, I, was, I, I, I heard a discussion yesterday about the, the kind of inflammatory talk radio that depends on calling people bad names, you know. Um, Al Franken's book about Rush Limbaugh, I won't even say the name, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's a quite a derogatory <laughs> remark about Rush Limbaugh, and it's meant to uh, echo the tenor of conversation in—I shouldn't have even said if I were doing right speech, Rush Limbo. But anyway, like, I, I did. <laughs> if it was wrong, we I'm, I'm no. sorry. No. But I just—I heard about it yesterday. But it's so interesting that it's not just to have a catchy title, but it's to make the point that the inflammatory remark, calling somebody a name, after you're in the second grade, after you're in the kindergarten, after you're in preschool, really. Uh, <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm thinking of my grandchildren that we say <laughs> that wasn't so nice to say. <laughs> how do you suppose that Harrison feels when you call? Him? We we do that with four-year-olds. I say, how do you suppose that Harrison feels when you call him that name? Okay, we expect the four-year-olds that they might know that the other person would feel bad when you call when you say something completely derogatory about them. I think that the mind makes a derogatory thought, it either the mouth either says it or doesn't say it, but the mind thinks so-and-so is the X, Y, Z, because we've already made them the enemy and now we have to put them down to make them less than. So it makes that sort of mean and distancing thought, which actually hurts in my heart when I think it. I don't like to have the kind of heart that thinks those kind of mean thoughts even if I don't say them, it's painful to me. So, I mean, it's not that I should think everybody is just the same. I think the great uh, art and challenge is to be able to have equanimity enough to be able to say, I completely disagree with this person's point of view, but they're also a person. They thought about it. They arrived at this point of view. They have reasons for thinking it. Maybe I can change their mind. Maybe they can change mine. (laughs) Last week I said to a cousin of, uh, cousin of of mine, lives in San Francisco. We see them rarely and like them very much. They just live in a different world than we do. And we spent a very pleasant evening together. And we talked on the phone afterwards the next day and we were just saying it was really pleasant to get together. Thanks so much for dinner, all of those things. And I said, you know, I'm aware that we uh, never ever talk about politics or the world situation because I know that we both have completely opposite views of the situation. I said, but you know, I was thinking about when we came home last night, I really love you so much. And uh, uh, the four of us, when we're together, we really love each other so much. I said, I think about maybe you have you, I'd be interested since you're a thoughtful person, how you came to your point of view. I said, maybe sometime we could, the four of us, sit down, having as the mission that we'll say, now you take a half hour, tell me how you got to have your political point of view. How did you learn it? taught it to you, what substantiates it, what are the facts? It's all a dot book, you know. We make up our views out of dots of information. They assembled their dots in different ways than I did. said, you could explain yours for a half hour, and then I wouldn't rebut it, and then I'll explain mine for a half hour. or I'll go first if you want, and then you'll go. And we'll just listen to each other. It would be very edifying for me." She said, well, maybe. She said, <laughs> She said, maybe on the other hand we're better off. (laughs) And the truth is that I'm not sure that we'd be better off. I'm not sure that the more persuasive her case might be, shaking the edifice of my belief system, the more I might feel called upon, or my heart or my mind on its own recognizance or whatever, might feel compelled to make a bad story about her. So far I love her. And I'm not sure. What do you think?
1: Well, I think that's a great idea, to do it in that way that you just suggested. I, I don't know whether doing it at all is a great idea, but to have that, <laughs> 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 but to avoid it being a, becoming an argument, because that would be the fear that I would have of, well, let's not talk about it, because we'll just start arguing with each other and say, no, no, it's not like that. Yeah. But if you do it the way you're talking about it, it seems like it could be quite
0: then we could, after we finish, we could
1: go out to eat. Or yeah, and then you, the could, you could not <laughs> not even talk about it again. Just. Forever. forever, yeah, yeah.
0: right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, you think it's not a good
0: idea? it's <laughs> Not David. What?
3: I've
1: needless to say, I have a whole group of friends, and in this particular group, we've known each other for twenty-five years. It's not just yesterday. There is one person that who'd ever thought it, but it came up, and we all get together for Rosh ritual and all that. and We're going to be doing it on Sunday, and I have this yearning. I have this deep yearning of saying to him, and I don't know how to do it, of just saying to him, I know we have differences,
3: and I care about you, and I've been the recipient of a lot of love and well-meaning on your part. I would love like to support you having some time to just say what you feel, and not in any way, to rebut it or argue thing,
1: but to make room. Because I am a person who grew up in a place where there was not room for my innermost being and ultimately, I have to leave,
0: because I have to find someplace to have a room, yeah. and I don't want yeah. that. Oh, that's great. Yeah. 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 James, were you say
3: something? It very much like it's about the other person to me.
0: What do you think? Mm-hmm.
3: I think what I'm hearing is David saying, it's really about him, what he wants to know. And, in, and what you're saying, too, has a little bit of that for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's that, uh, you know, you, you really want to know what they're thinking, and if they want you to know, they'll tell you. I think huh? you opened the door yeah. and said, you know, I'm willing to listen and yeah. tell me if you want to tell me. but otherwise it seems mm-hmm. like you're probing.
0: Yeah,
3: yeah. You know, and I don't know, is that Buddhist?
0: No, maybe, maybe exactly, because I'm trying to make room for that to be right, mm. because maybe I have a, a, the truth is I feel a little bit of anxiety when we're with them together. Mm. Like any minute, everything's going good, <laughs> but any minute. <laughs> Because in, no, in truth to tell, us, a whole in total candor. In the in the, we've not, I mean, we are relatives for forty years now, fifty years. So in total candor, every once in a while, they will will go past uh, a magazine, uh, newspapers, and there'll be some uh, headline completely what I don't want to see, and they'll say, "Oh, good," and i <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and I will
0: feel alarmed, and I'll think, uh-oh, how are we going to negotiate this? You know? That's true. Go ahead.
2: I, re- I heard two, I think it was Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon on radio once, and they said that the success of a true activist, or uh, to be successful at activism, is to actually understand and really know your, the opposite viewpoint, yeah. to take it in to hear it, mm-hmm. to listen to it, to open your mind to it, and then think, go back and think about it. But that if you don't hear that, if you don't understand it, you can't truly be successful in maybe making a little bit of a difference or a change. Mm-hmm. And I really, when I heard them say that, I was like, oh, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I'm so busy you know, with my opinion yeah. that it doesn't make room for, a, well, maybe there is something valid in what they have to say. And I also hear you saying that. Mm-hmm. That you love them, and that, but that you want to see. Well, maybe there is something that makes sense because they can't be crazy. They're decent nice people,
0: thoughtful, <laughs> decent, yeah, smart.
2: Right, but I think you're looking for that as well. It's like, what is that? But maybe I can. Yeah. Maybe I will agree on one little thing.
0: So listen, let's go back there. Everybody has to talk, talk fast because it's eleven. We have to do so three things. <laughs> so, but say what you want to say. <laughs>
3: And what I've learned is I have to understand and respect the other p- point of person's point of view enough, um, and for me that's totally as much as I can, to be able to understand where they can listen, yeah. can. where you can make a point. <laughs> so for me it's a study. <laughs> and I honor the person who has the point of view because I love them and I had training in that all my life. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, if you can think of the person as... No, I'm stuck with
0: I mean, my mother and, my <laughs> <laughs> I don't know here. and I love them, and
3: that's not going to go away. I mean, it's good to thank you very much. Go. Go Anne. Oh, thank you. I wanted to—it's sort of, for me, the parable of the rifle and the fly-fishing rod. Um, my brother died recently, and he had guns, and he had uh, fly-fishing rods. He was an avid fisherman. And I don't know what he did with his guns, and we got rid of most of them, but I saved one very beautiful rifle. And my cousin, who lives in uh, Oregon, uh, is a hunter with his sons and with friends of his, and they, we happened to have been talking about it, and uh, I learned what great pleasure and camaraderie um, they derive from doing this. And we were talking about it, and it turns out that they in fact support a lot of wildlife management uh-huh. in the practice of being hunters, because if they didn't, uh-huh. there wouldn't be anything to hunt. <laughs> and, um, and that's not so different from my brother's membership in Trout Unlimited, uh-huh. which is a conservation um, uh, uh-huh. entity, which um, helps make sure that there's trout, and they, uh-huh. they believe in catch and release. Mm-hmm. So this summer I saw two different cousins, the one who hunts and another cousin who fishes. And I gave my cousin who fishes this beautiful fly fishing rod. Mm-hmm. I don't know what he's gonna do with it, if he's gonna catch and release or if he's gonna catch and eat. But I hope he'll enjoy it and think of mm-hmm. my brother. Mm-hmm. And I have that connection with him because I shared that with him. Mm-hmm. And similarly my cousin who hunts was thrilled to get this rifle. And he learned all about it and who made it yeah. and how many that were made and he'll share really wonderful times with his friends mm. and his sons mm-hmm. with this that came from my brother mm. so um you know <laughs> i don't shoot guns okay <laughs> uh that's not what i'm saying but i do think that there there is uh, even out of bad things can be good shared mm. experiences
0: mm-hmm.
3: and that what to us seems Isn't necessarily. It doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily
0: bring that. You know, I thought what we were going to be talking about this morning was about engaged uh, Buddhism or social activism. It actually sounds more like what we have been talking about is non-attachment to view, which I'm very happy Mm -hmm. about because that would be fundamental Mm -hmm. to it. Uh, I need for us to finish because I see that people are getting ready to go, and we have to do birthday blessings. I want Susan to announce, uh, why don't you announce okay. about this Sunday?
1: Well, um, the, the event that pro- if you prompted stay. this is um, that um, this coming Sunday in Berkeley, from 6.30 to 9 p.m., we are having a Turning Wheel Salon, which is the third one we've had. We've had them on uh, each different issues of Turning Wheel and on the theme of the issue. And this one's going to be at the Berkeley Zen Center Community Room which is 1933 Russell Street in Berkeley, 6.30 p.m. this Sunday till 9 p.m. And it's a a gathering and discussion about our summer issue of Turning Wheel, which is on the theme of Black Dharma. And uh, the issue is one I'm really proud of, and it has, it was co-edited with me by an African American, Lewis Woods, who's been involved with activities at Spirit Rock. And it has Alice Walker and Jan Willis and a number of other. Less well-known African-American Buddhists in it, and so there are going to be some contributors to the issue at the event, and we'll be wanting to just have some general discussion and discussion and sharing about what um, what does what is Black Dharma? What can um, Black Buddhist practitioners um, let their non-African-American friends know that we need to hear from them, and how can we support each other, and how can we make our sanghas more open, and so on. So Mm -hmm. it should be an extremely interesting evening, and I would encourage you all to come. Everybody's welcome. And also, I I have the current issue of Turning Wheel, which looks like this, and the summer issue on Black Dharma here, and anybody is welcome to get a copy from me for $5. And I also have brochures about the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, which you can help yourself to. And I'll, shall I just leave them up here, Sylvia?
0: Or yeah, that'd be good. Uh, I also want to tell everybody um, that on behalf of all of you out of the Donna Basket, I will make a present to Buddhist Peace Fellowship oh, that's great. on our behalf for uh, for their work and for Susan's uh, visit this morning. and all make it out of what you give us. So it's actually from all of us. Well, thank in, you for the Space Fellowship. Like, so we'll do that. I want, to, I want to end at least the teaching part of this by reading you uh, the Druid vow of friendship that somebody sent to me after, after I, we had had a similar discussion three or four months ago, and someone sent this in terms of, well, it's clear. I honor your gods. I drink from your well. I bring an unprotected heart to our meeting place. I hold no cherished outcome. I will not negotiate by withholding. I am not subject to disappointment.
3: Mm-hmm. It's
0: called the Druid. Druid vow of friendship, it says. And um, if you wanna come find uh, where I got it, It's uh, someone sent it to me, but if you wanna see the website, come and see.